Hello, I'm your host, Dora Vandekamp. Welcome to the Biohack Your Beauty podcast, where we take a deep dive into the world of biohacking, spirituality, wealth, and self-development. Join me in exploring paths to health sovereignty, freedom, and ultimate well-being with the experts, teachers, and guides who are leading the revolution. Hello, beautiful ones. I'm so excited to share this new episode of the Biohack Your Beauty podcast about overcoming fertility challenges with incredible guest, Dr. Katie Rose. I love this conversation so much, not only because Dr. Katie is so intentional and full of wisdom, but also because I'm in the season of my life where fertility and starting a family is on my heart. I feel so passionate, as many of you know, about prenatal health and nutrition and being empowered in intentionally preparing our bodies for pregnancy because this is so powerful for supporting babies' development and long-term health throughout their life. I know so many women out there struggle with fertility challenges and wonder if there are other options outside of the Western medicine route, which tends to be invasive in a number of ways. If you're experiencing challenges with fertility, I'm sending you so much love today, and I hope that this episode is helpful for you. This interview is so rich in value, in insight, and empowering information, and I'm so honored to be able to share this transmission with you. So without further ado, on to the show. Hello, Dr. Katie. How are you today? I'm good, Dora. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm really excited for this conversation. Fertility is such a important subject. It's something I'm really looking into as well as, as I think of starting a family. So I'm going to learn so much. I know you as the listeners are going to learn so much as well. And maybe we can just begin by you sharing a little bit about your journey and what led you to specializing in this field. Yeah. So I think like a lot of, um, healers as a naturopathic physician, specifically, I came to this journey because I had my own health issues that as I was in college, I was in pre-med, like a physiology program for my bachelor's. And I was getting sick all the time. It was a running joke at my primary care doctor's office that I should just have my own parking space. And I was like, I am 20. This is not funny. (laughs) And someone at her office, a nurse actually pulled me aside finally and was like, you are too young for this chronic health stuff. You have to go see a naturopath. All of our patients who see one are healthier. It's like, Oh, okay. So I eventually took her up on that offer and saw this person who really ended up changing the trajectory completely for me, both in my health and in what I thought my career was going to look like, because I had always like from the time I was maybe 12, wanted to be a doctor. And after seeing someone who looked at my health picture holistically and asked questions like, what are you eating? How are you sleeping? Do you drink enough water? (laughs) Like really practical questions. And no one had asked in years that I'd been sick. 
it was like, oh, there's a different way to do this. This is wild. I can't ever go to conventional medical school now knowing that this exists. Like I just wouldn't be satisfied. So I ended up taking a year off in between undergrad and med school to like really solidify that decision. Went to naturopathic school. And while I was in medical school, decided that I didn't want to be on birth control anymore, which I'd been on since I was 18, starting for acne purposes and then to, you know, legitimately prevent pregnancy. But I just had this like deep intuitive feeling that this was not for me anymore. And I wanted to know like what my body was up to without it. So when I came off the pill, I didn't get a period for six months and then once I did, it was like another six months. And I was like, well, this isn't normal. And my OBGYN who I'd seen since I was 18 really brushed it off. She said, you know, if you're not trying to get pregnant yet, why are you worried about it? Like, just go back on the pill if you want a regular period. And that just didn't align with me in any way. Like it had actually become a very deep seated fear of mine that like, what if I can't have kids? What does this mean? If my body is not doing what it is supposed to do, if I'm not ovulating, how am I going to get pregnant when it time comes down the line? So I took that into my own hands and with the help of a couple of my mentors from medical school, I got my hormones back on track and it took a couple of years to see that happen. And I realized if this is how women are being approached by their trusted providers, It's no wonder we have 12 to 15% of the population diagnosed with infertility. So that's, that was gosh, 13 years ago that that came into my (laughs) awareness. And that is why I specialize in fertility today. Mm. Wow. And 12 to 15% is, is wild and it's growing it's not shrinking. It's, it's growing. Correct. Yeah. Which is really crazy to think about. Do you feel like that is related to birth control? Because the number of women who are prescribed birth control, you were prescribed birth control at 18, some women as young as 10 or 11 years old. And for symptoms that are unrelated to pregnancy. So like you said, acne and PCOS and all of these other symptoms, which, and I say symptoms because there is a root cause for these symptoms. So do you feel like that infertility is related in some ways to birth control? I'm not going to go as far to say as it's related to birth control. I think that would be unfair to birth control, (laughs) but the birth control suppresses the symptoms and the symptoms are the guide to say something is going on deeper. Is there a gut health issue? Is there, you know, an exposure to toxins issue that, you know, our livers just can't really contend with because we weren't ever designed to deal with the level of exposures that we have now. Is there a chronic stress issue in this country? (laughs) There's, there's a lot of other issues that, birth control is just masking. I don't think birth control is the villain here. It's the lack of curiosity and creativity and asking, is there something going on that we could support differently? Or are we just going to feed into this quick fix culture of like, let's just take a pill for it. It'll go away. Mm. 
And so when you talk about gut health issues and chronic stress, so if those are the root causes, what are the symptoms of those things? So I mean, the gut kind of feeds into every element of our being, right? So from neurotransmitter production to our immune health, to how we absorb and utilize our nutrients. And if there's inflammation in the gut, if there's a microbiome imbalance, which can be fueled by stress, it just feeds into this cycle of inflammation in the body Mm -hmm. and oxidative stress. And what we can see outwardly is, you know, acne is really common. Other skin conditions like eczema are also quite common. Um, not everyone has an obvious GI symptom. If they have GI inflammation, it doesn't mean everyone's walking around and bloating and constipation and diarrhea. Like it might be very subtle. It might be chronic fatigue and even insomnia can have these elements of dysregulation of our gut. And, and, you know, from there, then we try to figure out like, well, is, is chronic stress at the root of this? Is it an environmental exposure? It's usually a combination of things. Like we're, we don't just exist in a vacuum where there's just one element and we have to do a holistic assessment also figure out which is the priority to start with here. Mm. And you mentioned environmental exposure and what is that when you say that, what does that mean? Well, I think a big one like we could glom onto because the media is finally like paying attention to this are like the forever chemicals, the PFAS, the plastics, you know, we're now seeing like microplastics in placentas, which is quite alarming. And, you know, it's, it's like ubiquitous in our environment. Like there's plastic water bottles, there's plastic packaging for our food, like so many of our home care and body care products are coming in plastic. Like, it's just like, you can't avoid it. Even if you're really, really intentional about it. Mm -hmm. It's pretty scary. It's really scary. Even like my dad, he wraps everything in plastic. Like if there's bread, you know, he doesn't want it to go bad. So he has like a plastic bag that he wraps it in and then he wraps it in another plastic bag. And I'm always like, Oh my gosh, like all, all the plastic. And The other thing that I want to mention is fragrance. So can you talk a little bit about fragrance and how that impacts us? I would love to. (laughs) (laughs) I would love to, Dora. I have a personal vendetta against fabric softener and it's my life's mission to eradicate it from the planet. (laughs) Yes, let's do it. Let's do it. I'm on board. Let's make a nonprofit. Like where do we start? Yeah. Um, Yeah. So fragrance, like if, if you're reading a label of say, your body lotion. And usually it's like the last of the second, last ingredient. It'll say fragrance, perfume. It might even say natural fragrance or natural perfume. We have to understand that that industry does not have much regulation around it. And if something says fragrance, that could be one of over 400 chemicals that are usually from the petrol industry. These chemicals, you know, when we're putting them on our skin or we're infusing them into the air in our homes, we're either breathing them in or they're being absorbed. And our skin is very absorptive. It's the largest organ in our body. We've got to give it some good attention here. And those chemicals can disrupt the receptors on our cell sites. 
that can then change how our hormone signaling works. It can also mimic hormones. So some of these chemicals can mimic estrogen. So when we have all of these conditions that affect fertility, like fibroids and endometriosis, we also have to pay some attention to all of these chemicals that mimic estrogen and change our hormone metabolism in the body. And these are also things that I think on average, the studies that have been done on these show that women are exposed to 12 to 15 different products per day that can contain hormone disrupting chemicals. So it's, it's a big conversation, but we don't have to get super overwhelmed about it. We can make baby steps here. (laughs) I, oh, I feel you so deeply with the fragrance thing and, and I'm so sensitive to it as well. Like, it's so wild to me. Like I, it's, it's like just this attack every time (laughs) I'm in a room with someone who has fabric softener on or perfume or cologne. Like I'm so blessed that my fiance doesn't wear cologne. I kind of told him in the beginning, like, don't wear it because I can't date you if you wear cologne. Like, it's just, it's a, it's a deal breaker for me, (laughs) but it's also fascinating how it impacts sex hormones when it comes to pregnancy as well. I mean, it's just a really wild thing to think of the impact fragrances have on the development of your child in the womb and how it really scrambles things up in a way in that sense as well. It's it's pretty alarming in the sense that it can influence our genetics. So like our DNA is set in stone, right? But our genes and the enzymes that are expressed based on our genes can change based on our environment. So we, we kind of say like the genetics load, the gun, the environment pulls the trigger. And that's an example of we're seeing so many chronic diseases, even in children now that, you know, when I graduated from medical school 10 years ago, were even less prevalent, but asthma and eczema and autoimmune conditions and gut health issues. And it's like, and, and some of these kids, like, you know, they're not necessarily exposed themselves, but you start asking about like, what were their mothers exposed to, or even their grandmothers? Because when we think about when a, a female fetus is developing, she is forming all of the eggs she's ever going to have at birth. She will have all of those eggs already developed and they're paused in their maturation, but we have three generations that can be affected by one exposure. Mm. So becoming intentional about this months before someone actively starts trying to conceive really can make a big difference in the health outcomes for them, their child and their grandchildren. Yes. And so much of that we're seeing, like you said, it's really wild. It's like an epidemic to see just how children are impacted and the prevalent issues that they're dealing with. And there's so little that is known about how to deal with those things in a holistic way in the medical industry. So what you're seeing or what I've seen at least is, is children who have eczema, who are, they're doing immunotherapy, like chemotherapy on these children who are like six years old because they have terrible eczema. Right. And, and you look at why is this happening? What is the root cause of this? And in perhaps in a setting where you are, where you're looking 
at the root cause and what are the environmental factors, perhaps that would be dealt rather differently. But because the medical complex has these very intense and drastic measures that they take, a lot of times this can really impact the quality of that child's life for the rest of their life. And it's very, it's very sad. It's, it's very heartbreaking to see. It is. And I, I want to be careful because I don't want, you know, any parents who may be listening to this, who have a children who's struggling, like place blame on themselves. Like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, if I had done this differently in pregnancy, if I had only known, like we do the best with the information we have when we have it. Yeah. And I think that's really important um, when it comes to like the emotional picture here too, is knowing that now that you know, you can start doing things differently and you can yeah. make small steps and it can make a big difference over time if we're consistent with it. Mm, and I'm so glad you said that because we do have that as parents and well, I'm not a parent yet, but I imagine when I'm a parent, I think every parent, <laughs> you know, has things like, I wish I'd done that differently, but Again, we all, like you said, we only know what we know and we're doing our best and our best changes, right? And the other thing is we have that with ourselves as well. Like, oh, if I'd only known that because I personally took Accutane when I was in high school Mm -hmm. and now looking back, oh my God, I wish I hadn't, right? But I didn't know, I had no idea. And so it's like having a sense of grace with yourself and, and love in that, in the sense that that's who you were and that's what you knew and, and you can't change it. You can just change what you know from now moving forward. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about fertility. I, I'm really glad we touched on fragrances and um, PFAs, but what are some of the things that women can do to actually support fertility in their bodies? Yeah. So really as, as soon as you have this idea of, I might want to get pregnant someday, you can start focusing on nutrition and some, some practical lifestyle pieces, like understanding circadian rhythm, understanding the importance of moving your body to nourish yourself. And something that I see quite frequently, of course, being in the United States and being a child of the nineties is we have a lot of people coming in who are struggling to conceive, who grew up in diet culture. And they're maybe just now starting to learn about what it truly means to nourish their body and eat well for their hormones to be happy versus just eat well for their body to look a certain way. Mm -hmm. And I think shifting your mindset around like, what does it mean to be nourished? This is no longer about calories in calories out, or, oh, I'm eating clean. It's about like, what do your cells need? What does your body need to feel safe to ovulate, to keep inflammation in in check, to help your mitochondria function? Well, food really does make such a difference. And the three months before someone conceives is arguably the most important because that's when a woman's eggs enter their final maturation. Mm. But even if we have, you know, a few years, like for me, like understanding that I wanted to have children and I could tell if I wasn't ovulating, something was off. I was like, something clearly needs to change. And it took three years 
for like regular ovulation to settle in. And so everyone's going to have a little bit of a different process with that. Um, and I do think that it, it can be so valuable to work with someone who understands what bodies need for fertility and can help tailor a plan and really individualize this because everyone's needs are going to be different. Mm, Yeah. It's so great that you mentioned what eating for what we want to look like versus eating for well-being and how we want to feel because they often vary. Right. And, and like diet culture, I totally relate to that. I think so many of us as women do. I mean, it's, it's like, how do you dodge that? We grew up in like low fat wheat and territory yes. here. So yeah. And, and super, I mean, I feel like a number of people that we've had on the podcast have mentioned, like women don't eat enough either. Like we really don't eat enough. And it's really weird because we have this like program in our head where if we eat like, well, how much we're technically designed to eat in our head, that feels like too much in our (laughs) mind that feels like, Oh my God, I'm going to gain weight. I'm going to get fat, you know, all the programming it's wild. It is. And I'm only laughing because the client that I will have later on today, like this has been an ongoing conversation of like helping her get more than 1300 calories a day, because that's what she came in with consuming and wondering like, why hasn't, why haven't my fertility treatments worked yet? I'm like, I'm not sure that this person's body truly feels safe with that few of calories. Like we've got to, we've got to bulk it up. We've got to get the nutrient density in there. Like I, just like transparency. Like I rarely have anyone track calories unless I truly want to understand if they're under eating. And and then it's just a tool to get their portion sizes up and get their density of nutrients up. Um, but I will agree with you that yes, women are chronically under fueling. And a big part of that, like you said, the low fat era is still so alive in people's brains. I even have that with my mom. Cause I tell her increase your fat intake in, and it actually will support weight loss in your body. Right. Because right now your body is freaking out and it's like, oh. I just need some nutrients. And so she's always like with the non-fat yogurt and I'm like, get the full fat yogurt. And she just can't do it. It's just so scary to do that. And that is a chronic thing for so many of us is like this fear of fat. And so should people be eating fat and what kind of fat is good for them? Um, Fat is great. And like, you know, I will always customize a protocol based around like if someone has real concerns about their weight also, but what I would consider ideal fats for someone who is trying to conceive would be butter, like good old grass fed butter wild caught salmon and omega threes. Um, I like whole food sourced fats. So like olives and avocados and, um, raw nuts and seeds that we want to be like mindful of where they're sourced so that they haven't been rancid, um, good quality pasture raised meats and, um, pasture raised eggs, like 
I'm, I have no fear of egg yolks. Egg yolks have so much good stuff in them, including choline and B vitamins, which are really important for babies developing brains. And, and I bring some mindfulness around seed oils. So canola oils, sunflower seed oil, because those can actually have oxidative effects. And when we're trying to heal ovaries and support a uterine lining, we, we want to decrease oxidation. We want to decrease inflammation. So when we talk about inflammatory foods, um, there are some fats that are definitely more inflammatory and those seed oils are one I'm real cautious about. I'm you're preaching to the choir. Cause I talk about seed oils all the time to everyone who will listen to me. I'm like, please, if you're going to do one thing, cut them out or yeah. just reduce them as much as possible. And we're, for those of you who this is your first time hearing about seed oils, we're talking about sunflower oil, safflower oil, canola oil, rice bran oil. I mean, chia seed oil, there's, there's a bunch of them, right. But those are probably the most prominent ones. Vegetable oil is just, Ooh, don't even go there. But again, like you said, replacing those with really good quality butter, grass-fed butter, uh, you know, like you said, the, the fish oil, that wild fish, uh, fat is really good. Cod liver oil is a good supplement that I, I don't know if you mentioned that, but I know that's a, a really good one, uh, for people to, to explore, but yeah. for cooking. And then I get the question, avocado oil is avocado oil. Good. And I don't know if you have anything to share about avocado oil. I mean, it's, I would choose avocado oil over canola oil, especially for higher temperature cooking. It's still not something that I want to be using like every single day. Like I would maybe prefer an unrefined coconut oil over that. Um, and maybe doing lower temp cooking, because again, like if your food is getting those really yummy, crispy edges, like that also contributes to some oxidative stress. So it's, it is, this is about balance. Like we certainly don't want to be pursuing perfectionism because that's a whole nother level of stress and it's unrealistic, but I think just understanding and bringing awareness to like, huh, what am I consuming? How is this fueling me or creating inflammation or creating more stress in the body? Mm. So yeah, for any listeners who are starting to freak out about, you know, they're, <laughs> like, oh, no. they're like, but I'm eating vegetables and that are, you know, roasted in canola oil. It's like, okay, well, great. You're eating vegetables. Like, let's start there. Let's make some subtle tweaks here. This doesn't have to be like a total right. overhaul of your life. Yeah. And go slow, like baby steps, right? Baby steps yeah. is good. Yeah. And then what about sugar when it comes to diet? Is that something to consider when you're eating for fertility? It can be, it absolutely can be. And especially for people who have PCOS or known inflammatory conditions like fibroids and endometriosis, the issue with sugar isn't necessarily sugar alone. It's, it's how we consume it and how it is just like sprinkled in all processed goods. Like if you start reading labels, you're like, Oh my gosh, like there's a sneaky 20 grams of sugar in here. And so just starting to bring the awareness to it. The issue with sugar in terms of fertility is that when our blood sugar is high, more often this like little pieces of sugar will attach themselves to our cells, our the ends of our blood vessels, our nerves called glycation. We see 
this issue called advanced glycation end products, which is essentially accelerated aging. So for people who are really concerned about like, oh my gosh, I'm turning 35. I need to like get the ball rolling on this baby thing. We actually can sort of turn back the clock on this aging process. If we're really mindful of what your blood sugar is doing. So this doesn't mean you have to never eat sugar again or eliminate it altogether. This just means like bringing the awareness to like, what is your body doing with sugars? Mm. And that's, that's kind of a crazy conversation because I know that there's such a, a focus in some areas on like the clean eating and like, you know, using coconut sugar or maple syrup or erythritol instead. And like, those aren't necessarily, like it doesn't, as long as it's going to turn into sugar, it's going to turn into sugar. Yeah. So I don't think we have to be obsessive around this, but some of my patients, I will actually have wear a continuous glucose monitor for a few weeks. Mm -hmm. So we can see what does their body do with certain foods Mm -hmm. and everyone's response is different, but it can be pretty wild to see that like for some people, white rice is like what throws their blood sugar totally out of range for hours and hours. And for other people, it's their sugar-free coffee creamer. So we just don't always know until we bring some awareness to it. It's so interesting because it really illustrates how different every single person is and how every person responds differently to certain things as well, which is why working with someone like you is so powerful because that's where we get that information, right? That's where we understand it more deeply. And then we have a resource to support us in changing and shifting those things that may be causing us to have challenges when it comes to fertility or health or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so when it comes to fertility, you mentioned stress a few times. So let's talk about stress. What impact does that have on fertility? Because this can be a really big part of getting pregnant too, especially if you have this really big desire to become pregnant and then there's um, a waiting period, right? That can create stress in itself. Oh, so yeah, I know. I'm I'm so I have so much compassion for all of my patients who are trying because you know, one person's version of stress might be that they have been trying for three months and it has just become like unimaginable that this has not happened by now. And I have patients who've been trying for 10 years, mm. you know, when they first come in. So I want to back up and just like clarify what is stress, right? Like we, as humans were adapted to, we initially in our caveman years had this archaic response to stress of like, you know, a lion is coming, (laughs) like we're stressed. And then we should be able to settle down from that, like other animals, but humans don't. And we are actually so evolved that even just a mere thought can create the same level of stress in our body as, as much as like a lion coming after us could. So when I assess what stress is like for a patient, it's not just a question of like, oh, what's your stress like? Because some people have really internalized and normalized stress for some people, they describe it as like, well, I was never stressed until I started trying to get pregnant. And now this is my stress. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I often will ask people more of like, well, tell me about a typical day in your life. 
what does that look like? And what was something, what was a situation that felt stressful to you? What did you notice in your body? How long did it take for you to feel like really settled down from that? Like there are other questions that we can be asking about that. Um, so just like, as an example, like, you know, we kind of live in hustle culture and that doesn't serve fertility very well because when we're chronically busy, which increases our adrenaline and our cortisol, our blood flow is redirected. So blood flow goes to the brain and it goes to the skeletal muscles so that we can be in fight or flight. And I would even add like super productivity mode, <laughs> hustle mode. Yeah. And when that happens, it's actually redirecting the blood flow away from the reproductive organs because the reproductive organs are like second fiddle. They're not vital organs. We don't need them to escape. So when we see that happening chronically, that's when we might end up with someone who they don't have a diagnosis of PCOS, but their periods have started to get irregular or they've started to get really painful cycles, or they've been through IVF. And even though they're 32, their egg quality was quote unquote, terrible, according to their reproductive endocrinologist. And so this is where we have to ask deeper questions about stress and how it might be impacting their body and directing resources away from their ovaries and their uterus. Wow. No, that was a mouthful. No, I think that's really fascinating. And so many of us are so, it's so normalized that pace, especially as entrepreneurs or as women who are working, that it's weird to even think that there is another way. And that often, I know I had this, especially when I became an entrepreneur and I had moments where I didn't have something to do. It was like, it almost felt unsafe, right? Like, oh my gosh, it's super uncomfortable, right? It's so <laughs> uncomfortable. And it's, and there's so much to that, right? I think that there, if we talk about trauma, we talk about ancestral trauma, we talk about how we watched our parents go, yeah. go, go, and, and have to be in fight or flight for whatever reason. So it feels so normal. It's kind of like, um, that, you know, if you've been in a really toxic or abusive relationship, and then the, when you're not in that, it almost feels like the good relationship feels wrong because you just are so programmed and your nervous system is so programmed to be in that fight or flight mode all the time. Yes. So if, if we can reframe hustle culture as a toxic, abusive relationship, I think, mm. I think we might've just done that. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, especially when it comes to how women's cycles are as well. Right. Because we're not like designed, like men, we don't have a 24 hour cycle every day. We have ebbs and flows and with our, our own cycles, ovulation or menstrual cycle. Yes. It's different. And it doesn't mean that we're less powerful. It just means when we are the most creative, when we are the most quote unquote productive, it's going to be different. And I think if we can lean back and really honor how magical that is, like how amazing we are as women. And really like as, as the birthers, like the people who have the uterus and the ovaries as the birthers, like how much power there is in that and how much that power and magic has been suppressed. Oh my gosh. That could be just an episode in itself. (sighs) Because, you know, and I have a, I have a hard time with 
the way that the birthing industry does in some ways perpetuate that disconnect from our power because of the way that there is so much over medication in the birth process, as well as a lot of kind of fear mongering in that situation. And so I feel like it's such a tragic thing when so many, I mean, women, like countless women and so many of my friends have had such dramatic birth experiences and feel in a way that that was that left them powerless and they felt less powerful than ever before. And it's so sad because it really is, it has the potential to be this initiation into your power. And so does pregnancy, right? And, and pregnancy is in itself can be such a beautiful and magical and powerful experience. And I've seen women stepping into their power during pregnancy, but also women who really felt so limited because they weren't able to continue the hustle and continue doing the things that they usually do and how it changes your body. The beliefs we have around that as well can be really hard for a lot of women. Yeah, it does. It's a big conversation. I know it sounds like we need a part two. On I agree. Stepping, in, <laughs> stepping into your power on the fertility journey. And I think mm-hmm. like that feature is actually something that is very different about my approach versus even, you know, other, I would say like functional or integrative providers who focus on fertility is it has not always been this powerful part of my practice, but over the last five, six years, since I've had my own children realizing that like, we can't disconnect our body, mind, and spirit. And that's part of what disempowers people in the standard medical approach is there's just this focus on the body. There's not this question of like intuitively, how does that feel to you? What do you notice in your body when we talk about this option? So it's really disconnecting people from their intuition, which disconnects them from their power and their own internal sense of safety. So when I talk to my patients and my clients about spirituality on the fertility journey, it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with whether they are religious or believe in God. It's, are they able to step into their own power and trust their intuition and trust that they are not alone? Even when they are feeling like, okay, physically I'm alone. I don't have support. Like what else can they draw from, from this this collective womb wisdom that we have? that is a huge piece of healing that is not given enough credit or really any credit in the Western world. And it's such a big part of our ancestors experiences with birth. And like you said, there is that sense of safety. If you know that you are held and there is something that is holding you that you are not alone And that's a really powerful thing to consider. Yeah. Infertility is one of, one of the most isolating diagnoses that I think a person or a couple can receive, not only because there's still some stigma in our society around fertility issues, but because it's invisible. And then we end up in scenarios where people go to a gathering and 
we had some newlyweds and people are like, well, when are you having kids? And they're yeah. like, do you, what, you don't know what response you're going to get from people. If you're like, well, we've been trying, or we've had three miscarriages or we're actually starting IVF and it's really hard. Like, you know, people aren't prepared for that depth of conversation. So it can feel very isolating. People start to avoid gatherings and baby showers and events that might be triggering. So that's a really important part of my work with couples is navigating that emotional piece and how to rewire these triggers and how to step back into their power. Mm. And if someone is really struggling with that spiritual peace, what is a way for them to start to explore that within their bodies or just within their daily? Yeah. So I use tapping or emotional freedom technique quite a bit in practice. I personally use it every day for a variety of reasons, but for my fertility folks, it tends to be like something that feels practical and doable. And like, they can feel a difference rather quickly. And then as they start to practice with it on their own and create their own scripts, they're able to get more depth from this. So we might just start off with simply like noticing, like, okay, you feel triggered. Where do you notice that in your body? Emotionally, like, do you feel angry, jealous, mad, sad, scared, et cetera? And, you know, we'll work through that until we can at least just find a place of neutrality, which is quite powerful, but it acknowledges how they feel. It doesn't push it away. It doesn't ignore. It doesn't suppress. It allows us to acknowledge and process so that we can step into our authentic self. And when we are able to express ourselves authentically, that alone is a major way of decreasing stress in the body. So I love tapping. That's one mechanism. Um, even just a simple act of like getting outside in nature is huge. I mean, we scientifically, we know that like we have fractals found in nature and when we, when our eyes see fractals and our brain translates that geometric information that lowers stress hormones. So that's big. And then once I get people kind of comfortable with that, Then we start talking more on like the deeper spirituality, like the connectedness that we all are, that we are all made of stardust, that we are all connected to the earth and to each other. And there is, there is no just us. There's no just you. And how can we call on that? How can we access that in a way that feels comfortable for someone? So maybe that means someone starts praying or starts journaling or starts calling on their ancestors or their guides and making a practice of every day saying like, all right, God, universe, angels, guides, whoever's out there and listening, like I'm here, I'm trying to do my part. I let go of the pieces I have no control over. And like, I trust that you are here with me and you Mm. will show me the next best step. That's really beautiful. I love those. And yeah, those are all really tangible things that people can do to step into that letting go and not feeling like everything is on your shoulders. Cause that can be very stressful, (laughs) not at all 
beneficial for your well-being. <laughs> no, it's, it gets us stuck in this very vicious cycle of no matter what health issue you're dealing with it, whether it's gut issues or infertility, it's like feeling stressed, feeling alone, feeling isolated is not the vibe. It's not the vibe. It's not the vibe at all. <laughs> and I do want to touch on what you shared about authenticity, which I think is just a really powerful thing to consider that so many of us, especially as women are programmed to be people pleasers. And a lot of that is why we have a hard time being authentic as well as because we want to make sure everyone is comfortable around us and everyone is okay. And, and everybody is, is likes us, right? That's part of people pleasing. And so really stepping into that authenticity can be really scary, but it is really shifting that program of people pleasing. It's pretty powerful. It's pretty powerful. Uh, we have, we have a whole module and a program that I have for fertility on radical self-love. And we're not talking about, you know, just like going to get pedicures and <laughs> it's like, how do we set boundaries? <laughs> how do we have these hard conversations when we've been in a pattern of people pleasing with, our loved ones, our in-laws, you know, for decades, like there's, there's a lot to be said there. And again, this doesn't have to be like an overnight shift because it can be very uncomfortable, but just acknowledging that like, it is okay for you to take care of you first. And actually you loving and accepting yourself first and taking care of yourself first will have a ripple effect of benefiting everyone else around you. Mm. Yes, it will. And it also impacts your kids too, right? Because what, what our kids do, what we do before they do what we say. Right. And so I think embodying that is, is really powerful as well. Yeah. Yeah. So on the biohack your beauty podcast, we have three questions we ask every guest. So the first question is what is your definition of beauty? Well, I think this is a really good segue from our last point <laughs> is authenticity. Mm. You know, when I was first introduced to Brene Brown, gosh, mm. I don't know what, five, seven years ago, like that, like her books to me, her podcast to me is just like, that blows me out of the water. Like that is so beautiful when someone can feel safe enough to be vulnerable and authentic and make that true deep connection to themselves and even just one other fellow human who might've needed that message that day. So I think authenticity is absolutely the most beautiful thing. Love that. The second question is what is your favorite inner or outer beauty tip for our listeners? Oh, that is so hard because <laughs> they're all connected, but, um, from an inner tip, I think valuing your own self-worth is really, really important. It's very difficult to do the things that you maybe know you're supposed to do, like drink enough water or put yourself to bed at a reasonable hour and stop scrolling your phone all night. It's really hard to do those things if you don't see your own self-worth and you don't see yourself worthy as 
having good energy and feeling good and getting the things that you want in life and getting your dreams. So I hope everyone who's listening can take a moment to just tell themselves that they are worthy no matter what. I love that. And the last question, where can people find you? So I am on Instagram, Dr. Katie Rose and my website, drkatierose.com. And the best way to learn about things I'm offering and free workshops that I do and all of that fun stuff is to join my newsletter. Amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Katie. It was amazing to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much, Dora. I really enjoyed this conversation.